Let's briefly just recap where we've been the past couple of weeks because Paul's kind of bringing us to an end on this little portion of Ephesians we've been studying. And recall, he talks about how Jesus has given gifts to the church in the form of five offices. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. These were the people who Jesus both called to these offices and then equipped them with gifts to carry them out. All of these offices were vital to the establishment of the early church, and they're as equally important to us here in the church of 2023. But we also saw how some of those offices, by virtue of the way they're defined, have seemed to naturally die off, while evangelists on occasion and the shepherds and the teachers take on a permanent role as the church becomes more prominently established within fixed communities. And then last week we learned that these offices were designed to equip the saints to do two things, to do the work of ministry and to build up the body of Christ. So it's not just the pastors, it's not just the church staff who do ministry, it's actually all the saints. And if you think about it, pastors can only do so much. There's only 24 hours in a day, but there are 583 of you who call Four Mile Church your home. And we cannot reach our mission, the Tri-State Region Beyond, making fully devoted followers for Jesus Christ, if the pastors and the church staff are the only ones doing ministry. We can only reach our goal to reach those, I think it's what, 166,000 people in Beaver County alone, if everybody on church is on a mission, if you've been equipped to do it. So that's our calling as believers. It's part of God's master plan to unite all things in Christ. And then today, Paul's going to show us what the ultimate end state of all of this looks like. He writes, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now there's a lot in there we're going to unpack today. So we don't reach the objective of all that Paul lays out here until something happens. That's why we see that word up there, until. When these five leadership offices, when they equip the saints, and then the saints go do the work of ministry, and then the body of Christ is built up, whenever that happens, it's going to manifest itself this way. Will all, and by all, it's all of God's adopted children, attain to the unity of the faith, first. Second, we'll all attain to the knowledge of the Son of God. And third, we'll all attain to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now when you step back and you look at those three objectives, they're daunting and exhilarating all at the same time. Daunting in that our sin makes it impossible for us to actually achieve it on this side of heaven. The fullness of Christ, think about that. But also, so exhilarating, because those items in blue are what we get to work toward, day by day. So as we persist, day by day, in our pilgrimage, our first objective is to attain to the unity of the faith. Now, Paul's already taught us on this, right? We looked at this earlier in the chapter, when he talks about one faith. And as you recall, 
One faith isn't about your personal faith. It isn't about your testimony. It isn't about those creeds that we recite as a church. Rather, it's about one faith that unites us in Christ. So while we may have different views on music, how we should do missions, or the end times, we cannot have different views about faith because it's what unites us. Now this is all by way of review. Remember, faith is the bridge. It is the mechanism moving us from being dead in our sins to being made alive in Christ. It's comprised of elements of both belief and behavior because what we believe shapes our behavior. The two are intrinsically linked. You want to know what people really believe? Just look at their behavior. And of course, the bridge, faith, is not the source of our salvation. We are not saved by faith. Faith is the mechanism. It's so important that we have that differentiation in our head. Paul taught us that we are saved by grace. By God's grace alone. His unmerited favor. It's a gift from God. Nothing we did to deserve it. It was purchased by Christ's blood, shed on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins. And it is the source of our salvation. And when we place our faith in Christ, the mechanism, we receive the Holy Spirit, and we're then joined to the church, united by faith. And that's also why we need to be crystal clear about what church membership actually means. Here at Four Mile, we do not take it lightly. In fact, our denomination, the Eco-Presbytery, calls it covenant partnership. They don't call it membership. And that is because we've actually made a covenant. We've made a promise before God to build each other up in Christ. Now, how does that differ from membership? Well, think about memberships you may have in your life. There's probably many of you who are members of Costco or Sam's Club, right? So you pay a membership fee. It enters you into a contract. You take those services from Costco until you're not happy with Costco, until they start to not have your products that you're looking for, their fees go up too much. And then what do you do? You take your ball and you go home. That's how we think about membership. But that is not at all what we're thinking about this way, when we think about church, breezing in and out, whatever fits our schedule. Or cut, let's say you come in the back and maybe someone gives you a dirty look or something. You're like, I'm out of here, right? Or someone cuts you off in the parking lot. Or even worse, someone sits in your pew. Can you imagine, right? But that's not a reason to leave. You see, being a covenant partner is among our highest honors because we are part of Christ's body, his church. So we're committed to each other. I wonder, have you ever thought about your church participation this way? Have you been called for that reason? What an honor to be counted among those for whom God would send his son to die on a cross. And of course, with that honor comes immense responsibility. Responsibility to contribute to Christ's body in whatever way he calls and equips us. And it doesn't matter what part of the body you've been assigned to. That's really important. It doesn't matter if you're a toenail, an elbow, a bicep. Each of us play a vital role. And there is a unity of the faith, even within our diversity. And that's what makes the church so special if you think about it. The body is just not complete if any of us are missing or if any of us are not playing a role. So when you don't show up on Sunday, 
or you don't carry out those pillars in your everyday ordinary life, you don't just hurt yourself. You hurt all of us here. Everybody is part of the church. And then second, we're to keep growing until we all attain to the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, this is a big thing here. We spend a lot of time on this. Think about that. Knowing God. The original word for knowledge is at the basis. It means a precise and correct knowledge. It means experiential. So it's a knowledge of Jesus that includes both cognition and recognition in a relationship sense. So it's not just knowing about Jesus, it's actually knowing him, every square inch of him, precisely and correctly. And that's vital if we're going to be like him, if we're going to attain to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So I'd like to take a little time this morning to propose maybe another way in which we might go deeper than our knowledge of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, in this particular sense. So, in addition to reading the Sermon on the Mount for head knowledge, why don't we start reading it also for heart knowledge? By that I mean crawl into the pages of Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Allow yourself to begin to experience it. Sit up there on those rocks. Look out over the Sea of Galilee. Smell the sea breeze. Take in that view atop the hill as Jesus teaches how a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And then he follows it up by talking about how we're the light of the world. Appreciate the looks on people's faces, the concern, the relief, the pain, the hope, as Jesus teaches them to love their enemies, something they've never heard before. Count the numbers as they grow. Sense the energy building as the Lord teaches them to pray. We all struggle with prayer. So do the disciples. Then listen for the birds as Jesus explains how God cares for each and every one of them. So there's absolutely no reason for any of us to worry. Experience your own heart. Leap for joy as each beatitude turns our world upside down and calls us to a deeper sense of humility. Crawl into the pages of the text and experience all that Jesus desired to convey that day. And then go to the well. Spend some time with that Samaritan woman. Observe the exhausted, worn, disillusioned face, the overtone of shame in her voice. Do you know how she feels? You ever been there before? Watch how Jesus tenderly addresses her, empathizing with her, but not excusing her promiscuity. Sit right there in her place, beside that well, and drink in of that living water that Jesus talks to her about. Notice how you almost lose your breath when Jesus speaks of worshiping in spirit and in truth. Swallow hard as you're overwhelmed by the history of that well. Jacob dug that well and he drank from it. And then marvel at the way Jesus lovingly speaks 
of the giants of the faith, like Jacob, because he knows them all so well. And how humbly he reveals that he's indeed the long-awaited Messiah. Have you ever met that Jesus before? And of course, be sure to spend some time with the woman who anoints Jesus' feet. Can you imagine humbling yourself in that Pharisee's home like that? Getting down on your hands and knees and then wiping your master's toes with your own tears. Tears that rarely surface because of your hard heart. Tears that reflect how profoundly sorry you are for your sins and how grateful you are for your Savior. Feel how your coarse hair begins to soften with each passing pace across his feet. Notice how your lips cannot stop kissing the spot where the nails will soon be driven because of your sin. Smell that fragrant alabaster oil that cost every last penny you owned. But of course, you don't even think about that because your Lord and Savior is absolutely priceless to you. Experience profound relief as he defends your actions in front of the others that day. And soak up how the Master extends genuine gratitude for the love that you have shown him. Marvel at how he grants his grace to you, that unmerited favor, nothing you deserve, by declaring your sins are forgiven. Has your heart ever felt so full before? And then pop back over to John 13, and now let Jesus wash your filthy feet. Feel that lukewarm water surrounding your ankles, that dirt and grit between your feet and his basin. As Jesus takes the towel from around his waist, notice how thoroughly he cleans between your toes, and it doesn't even tickle, because he is the master servant. He knows how to wash you clean. He knows how important it is to demonstrate the kind of love that God has for his people by massaging out the soreness and healing the very soles of your feet, demonstrating in this act the kind of love that the Savior and Lord of the world comes down from heaven to wash the very feet of those who would betray, abandon, and deny him over the next couple of days. Have you ever thought about that before as you read these? That's the kind of precise and correct knowledge of our Savior that we're talking about here. Notice, too, we're not making anything up. We're not fantasizing about these events here. We're sticking to the facts of the text. But as we engage with Scripture this way, we grow in our knowledge of our dear friend and Savior. The kind of experiential knowledge that comes from joining him in the garden in Mark 14, as you fight back that urge to go to sleep along with the other disciples, you're so tired and weary. Notice Jesus' sorrow. Listen to the earnestness in his voice with which he asked you to stand watch for him. Empathize with his agony as he falls on his face and calls out to God, Abba, Father, ask him, seek him, knock him for his Father to remove this cup but then obediently pleading instead that his Father's will 
be done, no matter the excruciating pain that it cost him. And as you follow his instruction to pray, that you not be led into temptation, you realize you can't fight it. You drift back off to sleep yet again. But here's the thing, he always returns to wake you because he loves you so much. And of course, don't forget to join him on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection so you can experience your heart burn within you as he opens the scriptures and make time to eat fish with him as he spends time with the disciples before his ascension. Gaze into that perfectly constructed fire built by those nail-pierced hands. And you don't have to just go to the New Testament either because Jesus found all over the Bible. As we'll see this fall, Paul uses marriage to convey how the church should interact with Christ, where the wife represents the church and the husband represents Jesus as the head. And so that has led many theologians to view the Song of Songs, the book of the Old Testament, which speaks of the marriage relationship as a symbolic representation of Christ and the church. And so perhaps in it, Solomon may be giving us a glimpse into Jesus' eyes as he describes how the wife that Solomon writes about used the eyes of her husband. They are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels, perhaps foreshadowing the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus in the form of a dove after, after his baptism in the Jordan River. His loving eyes that would not change, even with blood streaming down both sides. Because as the Old Testament prophet Isaiah writes, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind as a result of Christ's crucifixion. You see, the entirety of Scripture is the story of Jesus, and he invites us to climb into it so that we can know all about him, for sure. But more importantly, know him in the sense of a relationship. So as we become participants in the great narrative of Scripture, we all begin to attain to that precise and correct knowledge of the Son of God. And that's why we can't see the Bible as something we just try to make room for in our lives. Rather, we must see our lives as unfolding within the context of Scripture and our relationship with Jesus. As Eugene Peterson writes, this book, the Bible, makes us participants in the world of God's being and action. But we don't participate on our own terms. We don't get to make up the plot or decide what character will be. This book has generative power. Things happen to us as we let the text call forth, stimulate, rebuke, prune us. We don't end up the same. We cannot become like Jesus unless we know him unless we are in a relationship with him. And let's be honest, being in a relationship with Jesus, it's not easy. We're finite beings. He is God. He's infinite. But that is why he sent his Holy Spirit to live within us so he can guide us in this relationship. Always convicting, counseling, comforting, illuminating the truth of Scripture so we can grow to mature manhood. And the measure we have is the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's that Christ-likeness we talk about all the time whenever we talk about sanctification. It's being humble, 
servant, warm, gracious, merciful. Those are those words we see pop out of Scripture whenever we look at Jesus. That's all that we experience when we jump in the text. And then those fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I'm not really sure what else you could want to be in life because there's nothing better than being that. A saint is someone who resembles these things. Not because they're perfect people, but because they're in relationship with Jesus. He reigns in their lives. There's actually nothing better than him. So when people see you, do they see Jesus? Not your version, but the true Christ is found in Scripture. You see, this is why God calls us to participate in his master plan, his church, so that we can become more Christ-like and so that we can be used to help others do the same. Growing to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let's pray. Father, call us. We ask, seek, and knock that we might be unified in our faith with a precise and experiential knowledge of your Son. Bring us into a greater relationship with Him. Make us mature to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ for His sake for the sake of his church. Amen. So for our response time today, we're actually going to jump in to one of these stories. It's one of the key features of Holy Week, Peter's denial. The text is from Luke 22, 54 to 62. And if the font up here is too small, just go to your Bible. If you're online and you're having trouble seeing it, same thing, go, to, go, go online or go to your Bible as well. Um, I think it's going to blow up on the screen soon. So here's the thing. We don't want to fantasize about this. We don't want to make it wrong more things. We want to stay within the context of this particular text. So take some time and read through that. Take a look at these two graphics, these two images. They align directly with the text, and they help us kind of jump into this and think about it a little bit more. We're going to try to improve the atmosphere a little bit for you here um, with some, some sound of the fire and some other things. Um, but we also will give you some time to just jump into this text on your own. And then Tyler's actually written a solo on this, so he's going to go up and play that for us. And while that's going on, again, you'll see the full screen up here. And for those of you um, watching the recording of this, you'll still see the screen. We haven't gone away, um, but I'd just like you to sit back and uh, maybe close your eyes as Tyler sings it for you. And put yourself right into this particular scene that we're studying here. So let's all just take a few minutes and let's dive into this text together. 